Welcome to another episode of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. I'm your resident storyteller, Eric Payne. Wolves communicate through body language, scent marking, barking, growling, and howling. When a wolf wants to show that it is submissive to another wolf, it will crouch, whimper, tuck in its tail, look the other wolf's mouth, or roll over on its back. When a wolf wants to challenge another wolf, it will growl or lay its ears back on its head. A playful wolf dances and bows. Barking is used as a warning, and howling is for long-distance communication to pull a pack back together and to keep strangers away. Welcome to the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. After getting his master's degree in getting cursed out, his second master's in getting kicked out, Eric Payne decided to pursue his doctorate in getting his life right and staying in his own lane. But upon getting all his degrees, he realized he was a fish out of water in this new dating landscape. Eric was 28 years old when he met his ex-wife and was newly divorced at 43. The world had changed considerably since the days of StarTac beepers, Motorola flip phones, and Yahoo Chat. It is vicious out here in these new streets where taking pictures of yourself all day long with a phone and posting them on the internet is actually a thing. The Dating After Divorce Survival Guide is the story of Eric's journey from love and marriage to divorce to dating to hopefully love and marriage once more. It's funny the stories we tell ourselves. Tell ourselves we're strong enough. We tell ourselves we're built for this. We tell ourselves it's no big deal. We tell ourselves we can handle it. Because of the life we live, we don't want to give anyone else or any situation so much power over us that we're willing to confess that we're not okay. I mean, quite a few people do confess that they're not okay. But speaking as a man, and a black man who has been as probably atypical as I am as far as being macho or anything like that, it's still not cool to be an emotional mess. And I had spent so much time after getting divorced being emotional and emotionally vomiting, which was something that my ex-wife constantly accused me of, that I started to shore up, batten up the hatches, and get tight with mine. And become unfazed and become almost Vulcan, if you will, with my emotional responses to things. Things bothered me, but I didn't respond anymore. My lack of response almost became a response in and of itself. It was viewed as aloofness in the workplace. It was viewed as a-hole-ishness. In relationships, and my poor daughter, she didn't understand what was going on. The stories we tell ourselves are actually the lies we tell ourselves. And if we wake up and go to sleep with them enough, that lie becomes our reality. But it's not real. So what lie did I tell myself? The lie I told myself was that I was fine. That I would be fine. That as long as I worked out, as long as I gave thanks, 
as long as I went to church, as long as I prayed to the Lord, that I was fine. But I just wasn't fine. I simply wasn't fine. I said I didn't want anybody. I said I didn't need anybody. And that was definitely something that I believed. But I kept falling back into quasi-relationships. I kept falling back into dating. I kept falling back into doing things that I said I wasn't going to do. And why? Well, because I wanted to be understood. Because I wanted to be heard. Because I wanted to be held and touched. Even though I still wasn't comfortable being touched by anybody other than my ex-wife. Because their hands looked different. Because their skin felt different. Because their touch against me felt different. Because their hands looked different against my skin. Because they had a different way of doing things. And I just wasn't yet deprogrammed from what I had become accustomed to for 15, 16 years. To begin accepting something new. So what I did was I resorted to systems. And I did as much as I could do to protect myself. Without actually dealing with myself. Now... When I say I wasn't dealing with myself, it wasn't that I was avoiding it. I just think that because of the lies that I told myself, because of the stories that I told myself, because of the beliefs that I wanted to have about myself, that I was stronger than, an actually, than I actually was. Or more capable rather than I actually was. Not stronger. More capable than I actually was. I created systems and I just believed that if I had a system, well, then I should be fine. So what was the first system? Well, after having... 85.2378 billion arguments with my ex-wife via text message. I permanently put her on do not disturb. That doesn't mean I don't receive her texts. That doesn't mean I don't receive her calls. Well, I only put her texts on do not disturb. But what that meant was when her text came through, I was none the wiser. When I did go to my phone, I would I would see texts from her. But I wasn't sitting somewhere constantly being triggered because something went wrong. Now, our relationship, our post-marriage relationship was in an ebb and flow state. Sometimes we had moments of reminiscing. We have inside jokes. We have inside jokes to this day. And then there would be moments where it all flooded back. When we didn't see eye to eye and we didn't agree, her first salvo was to tell me that this is what I always do and this is who I always have been and this is why I can't and this is why and this is why and this is why. And I like to send long text messages. Just do a one-off. Get my thoughts out. Get it done. She's a stream of consciousness texter, which means if her stream of consciousness is a collection of 35 sentences, then I'll get 35 texts. I might put 35 sentences in one text and then, you know, do a little editing, try to make it a little short, whatever. So you can just have your one little read and keep it moving. So when you're at work and something goes wrong, receiving 35 texts, your phone vibrating, pinging and popping off the desk, just jumping around like popcorn. It just doesn't work. And I begged and begged and begged and asked and pleaded and begged and asked and pleaded and begged that she wouldn't do that. Or that she would chill so that we could talk because I started to discover talking was better. But it's not better when you're a keyboard gangster. And a keyboard gangster is someone who says whatever they want, 
behind the protection of a device without any input from the person that they're saying whatever they want to. And then they go on about their business. My pastor at the church that I go to here in Atlanta spoke on it often. I mean, he called it the devil. He called it the enemy. It might be, but it's also just people. You say whatever you want. You get it out of your system and you keep it moving. And that just stopped working for me. So I put her on do not disturb. And she'd always be like, how come you never get my, how come you always respond to my text 15, 20 minutes later? Oh, I was in a meeting. Oh, I didn't see it. Oh, whatever. It instantly made my life better. It instantly made my life more at peace because that access point that I had to unfortunately keep open due to the fact that we shared a child now was under my control. I was not at the beck and call of my device. I mean, it's no different than turning off the notifications for Facebook or Instagram or the news. It's the same thing for anybody that's thinking that it's like bad. No, it's not bad. I'm controlling the flow or or thinking that it's bad, thinking that it may not be right or thinking if they, you know, like thinking about the, the cons of doing it themselves. You're controlling the flow of information that you're bombarded with. And then you on your own are able to take the time as you so see fit to then go back through your messages. When Steve Jobs first decided that he was going to have text messages show up on the home screen, it was so you could decide whether you wanted to respond or not. Now, of course, when people get something, they then change it because what it did was it caused people to start responding instantly to people. But in its in its original iteration, the text message display was to give you the option as to whether or not you wanted to respond or wanted to wait. And in this particular instance, I chose to wait. So the next thing I did was I came up with a spreadsheet. I'm an ambivert. I go through ebbs and flows of introversion and extroversion. And I was still riding hard with the fact that I wasn't ready or I wasn't yet too, too desirous of being in a relationship. But I for damn sure wanted company. But I was having too much of a difficult time trying to figure people out. So I reduced them to data points. The spreadsheet was name, sometimes last name. It didn't really matter. I mean, I knew their last names, but it didn't matter. It was name, age, height. Guess on the weight, what kind of hair they had, short, long, perm, weave, although weave didn't really make it to my list, unfortunately. I'm sorry, people. It's just a preference. Locks. Ethnicity. Black American, Caribbean American, Latin American. Shape. You know, athletic, voluptuous, heavy. Communication style. Were they an upfront communicator? Were they a texter? Did they talk on the phone? Did they answer on did they answer? Or were they a callback kind of person? <sighs> yeah. I filled it out, man. It got pretty long. But then you're like, well, how are you meeting people? How are you filling out what it filling it out from what? Oh, and then I forgot the last most key part. Where I met them. That was key. Sometimes it was hookups. I had a coworker that was pretty good on point with connecting me with people. 
but there were there were also other things like Instagram. So you would say, how would you meet somebody on Instagram? Well, very easily. You slide up in their DMs. Now, and uh, someone with hundreds of thousands or millions of followers, they're never going to see the message. They're never going to see the message because they're just it's just too much. And someone else is probably managing their social media anyway. But for your everyday citizen who has a few hundred to a thousand or so, maybe even a few thousand uh, followers, you can very easily communicate with someone via DM. And if then, you know, they'll probably check you out and decide whether they're going to respond to you or not. And because I'm not giving a master class on this right now, I'm not going to say what you can do and how you can do it. But what I will say, and this worked like a charm for me every single time. There were a lot of folks that I, you know, you're, when you're married and then you stop being married, married, you look for other people who stop being married because they have a different perspective on things. You may have been checking for them, but couldn't because you didn't, you know, think because it wasn't appropriate. Well, here's the telltale sign for anybody who doesn't know. Um, I'm not so sure if it applies to guys, but it definitely applies to women. Here's the telltale sign to find out if someone is available on Instagram, especially if they used to be married and you're not sure and you definitely don't feel comfortable asking. This is how you find out. You scroll through their pictures, scroll down, and usually these people are family people, you know, husband, children, blah, blah, blah. You look for the last picture that was taken as a group with the husband in the picture, and then you scroll forward from there. If the pictures start becoming very kid-centric and vacations with the kids, and if the captions start reading like, Hey world, doing the best I can, brave new world, facing new challenges, love my children. When the, when the page starts becoming very kid-centric, then you know. And I have been right with almost 100% accuracy. And you ain't even got to have kids. When dude disappears off of the Instagrams, because women are kind of proud of their men. Men, eh. Yeah, it's not that they're not proud. I think there's a protectionism that's involved. You don't want to let someone know who you with because you don't want people coming after your prize or whatever it might be. And then sometimes people just don't want to put their business out there like that. And same goes for women. But I'm talking about the people that do put their people on social media. When that guy disappears, you have to scroll forward. Now, if it's just like a couple of a couple of lines of images or whatever, then so be it. But if they're like gone, gone, like they're gone for months, then it's pretty it's a pretty solid guarantee that they're gone, separated, divorced in the process of being divorced or like just it been done happened. It's over and life has begun anew. So I also had a column of source. So that was hookup, Instagram, grocery store, coffee shop at the park, at the gym, whatever. Having the spreadsheet made trying to see who was right for me easier if you were looking at data points. No different than looking at a resume as a computer program can determine whether a person is quote-unquote right or wrong for the job. But ultimately, the only way you know that is by getting in front of the person and seeing 
who they are and how they are and if there's a fit and if they are actually capable and and what their soft skills are and that's why my spreadsheet although it went out like about 10 lines deep was not really successful because it just never really it wasn't reliable because it didn't really give me kind of any real gauge on the people and the thing is <laughs> if I looked at the pattern that was showing up oh I forgot another column too emotionally available I put a more I had a column for emotionally available and the problem with my spreadsheet is that more times than not, most of the people checked most of the people in the emotional. Once I got to the emotionally unavailable column, most people were a no or a 50 percent or a IDK. I don't know. So that wasn't necessarily a them problem. That was a me problem. Me was the one that had the problem. Because I was the one that kept picking these emotionally unavailable people. I was the one who was up until very recently before the creation of this spreadsheet. Was having affairs with married women. And then one day I had lunch with an old friend. And I was lamenting about the fact that everyone was emotionally unavailable. And nothing was really working. And I didn't want anybody. But damn it'd be nice if something was actually possible. And we were at a Thai restaurant. And I remember her, she was doing work. Um, I was just kind of sitting there and she was working on her computer while she ordered literally food for way more than the two of us. And um, what she said hit me like a hammer in the head. What she said was, well, Eric, you're, you're still married. And I said, I ain't married. No, 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 I ain't married. She said, no, nah, you still got married energy on you. You're still married. You talk to people who are on their way out of divorce or just about divorced or not divorced at all. You are a beacon for people who are having relationship issues and then you wind up having relationships with them. You're still married and you might not be married to your ex, but your ex is definitely still married to you. She calls you for everything. She texts you all the time. Y'all are still married. Maybe not on paper, but spiritually you are. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? You're going to have to break that soul tie is what she said. This is the same woman that told me that I had to walk away from the first person that I dated on the rebound after I got divorced. As usual, she dropped a bomb in my lap and left it up to me to figure out how to fix my mess. I mean, but why wouldn't she, right? It's my mess. Thank you for listening. This has been the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. I'm your host, Eric Payne. We're here, typically, every two weeks. We're almost done with season two. Thanks for listening so far. If you haven't subscribed on your platform of choice, please subscribe, follow, whatever uh, your platform designates you to do. I would ask that you share this content with two or three of your friends trying to get the word out trying to let people know that there's a story behind divorce that men actually tell please visit my youtube channel i have a new video up about being a father it's a behind the scenes kind of content that i have been promoting uh, my youtube is youtube.com slash eric e-r-i-c pain p-a-y-n-e 
and thanks for listening. I did what any man would do when faced with having to deal with himself and deal with life and so on and so forth. I just went to work. I mean, I was doing work on me. I had read my books when I was going through my divorce. I was still going to church. I was still speaking to my mentors who checked in on me, my main mentor. Checked in with him, had lunch every once in a while with him, had dinner every once in a while with him. He made sure that there were no screws loose. Hashtag mentorship. So I was like, fine, I'm just going to work. I, I, I mean, I don't know what to do about breaking a soul tie except praying that it go away. At least I didn't know then what to do. At this point, the rumor about me dating the 21-year-old was halfway across the campus. But I enjoyed my job. I just threw myself into it. And I enjoyed my job probably a little too much because one of the things that I did in taking ownership of my position was I lost sight, I think, in retrospect. I lost sight of who was actually in charge. And I became the boss of my own position. I became the boss of my little bubble inside of my department. And you couldn't tell me anything. I did what I was supposed to do. But if you said anything to me that I didn't like, I responded. And I probably responded in the worst way. I responded intelligently. I didn't respond with attitude. I didn't respond with disdain. Well, I did. Now, as someone who's been through divorce, I absolutely refuse to shoulder more guilt or blame than necessary because that's something that someone who goes through a divorce sometimes does or any kind of hard situation where you think you could have done more. You have a tendency or proclivity to believe that there was more that you could have done or that somehow you were like more at fault than you actually are because everything is created as a result of a number of contributing factors. But I'm acknowledging right here and right now, I probably could have done a little bit better in my communication with teams outside of my teams, teams that I had to answer to, not teams that I was helping with or working alongside, but teams, actual stakeholders. I could have done a little bit of a better job, been a little bit more accommodating, but I wasn't. Why? Because I was getting tough. I was getting strong. I was I was understanding what leadership meant, and I think I may have been slightly misapplying it. Right around that same period of time, I was looking to launch my speaking career. I wanted to tell the story, my pain to power story. I had a podcast. It was called the Pain to Power Podcast, P-A-I-N, not P-A-Y-N-E. And my goal with that podcast was to show that you could turn triumph into tragedy. Sorry, you could turn tragedy into triumph. You could turn things around. You could be better, be stronger, be whomever you wanted to be. You didn't have to be defined by your circumstances. You could do it. You can do it. That's what I believed. And I started speaking on that. And I started talking and mobilizing to launch a speaker series on that. I had all these plans in place. I had all these things that I wanted to do. And I genuinely loved my job. I didn't necessarily like all the people. I loved, I loved the majority of the people, really did not like a couple at all, but I actually enjoyed the work. I felt, for the first time in a long time, purpose-bound, not 
purpose bound, like on the way to purpose, bound by purpose. And that's what caused me to show up to work. I definitely put my family first. If my daughter needed me, if there was a meeting at her school, if she was sick or whatever, I definitely would go take care of her and do what she do what I had to do because I was five, ten minutes away from her. There was an incident one time where right before Mother's Day, I was on my way to Chicago and I had to catch a flight, I think at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and I was going to leave work early. And my daughter sent an email to me to say, Daddy, the teacher took my Mother's Day card and tore it up and threw it in the trash. And I'm in tears. And I was like in the middle of a meeting. And I was le- I was not even leading the meeting, but I was like the second person leading the meeting. And I remember I read that email and I remember the head of uh, we were going over graduation. And I remember the person who was in charge of graduation asked me a question. And then I said, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? And she said, you just asked me to repeat it. And I said, I'm sorry, could you, I'm sorry, I was distracted. Could you repeat it one more time? And then I answered the question. And then I leaned over to my boss and I said, I have to go. I got to leave early. And she said, what happened? And I told her and she said, don't miss your flight. Do what you got to do, dad. Don't go crazy. Don't miss your flight. I drove maybe 80 miles an hour on streets and the highway to get to my daughter's school. And I was that dad. I was the one that volunteered. I was the one that was on the local school council. I was the one that went on field trips. I was the one that went on long distance field trips. I was that dad. People knew my name around the school, blah, blah, blah. But today I showed up at the school and I came into the principal's office. I mean, not the principal's office. I came into the office screaming bloody murder. And I, you know, I stopped short of dropping F-bombs because I wasn't cursing nearly the way that I'm cursing now. I didn't used to curse at all. And no one knew what I was talking about. And basically what I said, and there was a parent waiting in there. And I said, look, if this isn't fixed, I'm in there shirt and tie suit. Well, not suit, but a jacket, shirt and tie yelling at the top of my lungs. What is going on? Why is this substitute teacher do this? Why did this happen? If this doesn't get fixed, blah, blah, blah. Well, in between the email that I got and my drive over, my daughter um, had flipped out in class and they had taken her over into the art room because she's very artistic and she was designing her own card and redesign like drawing a card from scratch. So essentially what happened was this. The card was off color humor because her mom has a off color sense of humor. And somebody went through my daughter's bag, probably thinking that the card had a gift card in it or something like that. They opened up her card, saw the off-color card, off-color humor card, and started passing it around the classroom and laughing, unbeknownst to my daughter. And then the substitute teacher took the card, saw it, didn't, whose card is this? She said it was hers, and she ripped it up and threw it in the trash. Um, the same substitute teacher wound up getting fired because she had her iPad out and was recording the students for some godforsaken reason. And I remember I was screaming bloody murder. The school counselor, who I'm very good friends with, said, Eric, please, please, please calm down. Mr. Payne, rather, she said, Mr. Payne, Mr. Payne, please calm down. Mr. Payne, please calm down. Please calm down. We went into her office and I, well, the thing that made me calm down was that she was, uh, you know, a good six inches shorter than me. And I remember, I just remember her pleading with me to calm down. And in that moment, I like separated from the moment and looked at myself and her 
and imagined what I must have looked like towering over her and yelling at her. Meanwhile, she didn't even know what was going on. And so the first thing I did to level the playing field was I sat down and I calmed down. And then she like invited me into her office and she said, look, we don't like students emailing the parents, blah, 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 so that we can handle things here first and that parents don't show up the way you just did. And I said, I mean, right. But I think the reason that my child emailed me was because she wanted something done, which she acknowledged and she totally understood. She said she would get to the bottom of it and getting to the bottom of it was the fact that the card was taken out of her bag. The card was passed around the room. And the teacher tore up the card. She made a new card. There was no gift card in it. But the reason why, I mean, the, the, the natural assumption, and it was a real natural assumption based on what was going on at the school at the time. There was a lot of theft and robbery going on with uh, some of the older students. And my daughter was in fifth grade at the time. And the, and the fifth graders were, there were a lot of fifth graders that were probably eighth or ninth graders who were carrying out some salacious acts on the, on on the grounds between fighting with teachers uh you know hand to hand combat to stealing uh, one even stole the car but it's a great school the teachers love the students and i'm not saying that to dispute what i just said what i just said was happening but it was a great school the the kids really really loved the teachers and the teachers really loved them back and Everybody that was there got a really strong foundation to go elsewhere. It was a K through five school. So other than working out, dropping everything for my kid, and maybe speaking a little bit more harshly to my higher ups than I should have, I just don't think that I kind of cowered or said, okay, 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 the way a lot of other people did. I kind of countered and I thought the countering was good because I thought it meant that we were having dialogue. But other than those things, I was I was purpose bound and I was locked into the job and I enjoyed it. And I'll never forget that summer day, it was mid-June. I had just celebrated my year anniversary being at the school. And I remember telling my boss and she said, oh wow, it has been a year. And I remember getting up in the morning, It was a, there was an event going on I don't remember the name of the event, um, but it was an event going on with the students. And we had all this food there for them. The parents came for them. And it was like just a really, really great event. I had started creating viral content for the organization. I had everything set up to continue doing it. I remember I was talking to one the, the chief of public safety. And he said, you know, it's really great having people like you on board who are really vested and really are partners here and and it shows that y'all care about the students i remember i woke up that morning and i said god thank you thank you for this job i know that i've been a little resistant here and there but thank you i'm so glad to be somewhere where i am actually making a difference in the lives of people black people my people i mean i've worked at nonprofits before but i felt it some sort of special kind of way I don't know if it was because I was at an HBCU and I saw these kids like being developed into incredible human beings that would go out into the world and make a difference because, you know, it mattered. Um, it also poked holes in my own academic experience because, you know, I went to Cornell University and I went to Binghamton University and I was lost the whole time. Why? Because nobody talked to me. Nobody gave two hot dams about who I was as a human being. 
Yeah, there was the black advisor, but the black advisor was overwhelmed and the black advisor treated me like trash. So I so I quit her immediately and moved on to someone else. Teachers treated you like non non persons. I remember being in a number of group dis discussions and almost everything that I said in my little small group things that I had with my professors at Cornell were dismissed. And the random musings of the others were treated like the most delightful, inquisitive uh, curiosities ever. But what I saw at the school where I taught, where I um, worked as director of marketing communications, what I saw there were young black minds being cultivated whole students being cultivated to be full functioning adults in a world that may or may not care about them. And I really truly desired that. And since I couldn't have that as a student, I was like, well, dang, let me just pour my all and give my all because this place is great. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back to school. I don't know that. I mean, that's how I was feeling that morning in June. So I went to work suit and tie. I had just bought a brand new suit. Uh, the week before or two, it was at the tailors, got it out. And I hadn't had the money to buy a suit due to being unemployed uh, the year before. I hadn't had the money to buy a new suit. So I went and got a suit, got it tailored, a lighter suit because all my other suits were like heavy wool. And I remember I wore the suit to work and I was so happy and so proud and so excited to just be on campus and nobody knew how I felt. I mean, I wasn't skipping around or telling anybody this. This is all internal conversation. This was all prayer between me and God. And around noon, I get a text message. Um, no, I'm sorry, not a text message. I get an email on my phone that says uh, you, a meeting's been added to your calendar. And I was like, OK, well, let me finish up doing this thing that I got to do real quick. And uh then I got a text from my boss saying, hey, did you see the meeting I added to your calendar? And I said, yeah, yeah, I was just finishing up doing this thing right here and I'll be right there because we were supposed to be having a department wide lunch that was being catered, you know, to celebrate, blah, blah, blah. It was at one o'clock, something to that effect. A working meeting, something like that. So I was like, all right, well, I don't know what she wants, but let me let me run and go get 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 to doing what I need to do. Because I was supposed to be her number two or her number three. It vacillated from time to time. Either way, I didn't want to disappoint. So I finished up doing what I was doing on the ground floor with the event that I was working. And then I ran upstairs. And the meeting was in the room next door to where we were having our, our meeting, our catered lunch meeting. And I went into the room. And she was sitting in the room. And the head of HR was sitting in the room. And the first thing I thought was, you know, the flirtation or whatever. I, the first thing I thought was maybe that rumor about the 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 21 year old that I had had the uh, relations with off campus. I thought something had come out. I thought I had done something. The first thing that crossed my mind was that I had done something inappropriate. So I said, oh, my God, what did I do? And my boss sat me down and said, oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. The HR rep didn't say anything. And uh, my boss said, look, there have been changes. There have been departmental changes. There were tears in her eyes. And she said, uh, and we're going to have to do things a little different. I 
don't understand why people can't just come out and say stuff when they're the ones that are behind the, the trigger pulling. And I said, okay, do something different. What does that mean? Like less hours, swing shift, I'm going into another department. She said, no, we're, we're not going to be working with you anymore. We're separating ourselves, separating you from the organization. Scowl immediately crossed my face, but what did I do? Like, the last performance review I got was the, or my first, was good. I mean, what did I do? Like, what did I do for this? You didn't do anything with just departmental changes. And that's really all I have to say. And she literally got, um, you know, the, the HR person almost said her name. The HR person will take care of the rest. She got up and ran out the room. Man. What a slap in the face. And I'll admit, my exit interview probably was not the most positive. I was angry. I was really angry. And I wasn't yelling and screaming like, you know, angry, but I was angry. I was crass. I was sarcastic and I was snide. And I said a lot of things. Hmm. I just, I, I couldn't comprehend why if I was this dedicated star and other people's words, not mine, star employee, why was I being let go? What did I do? I didn't believe that I didn't do something. Even if what I did, air quotes did, was something to offend someone else. What did I do? The HR rep wouldn't tell me. She talked me through the stuff and I started laughing and I said I, I, I'm sorry I, I can't do this with you right now I, I need to I need a minute I need a minute and I mentioned that I was speaking that I was trying to launch a speaking career earlier well there was a gentleman who I wanted to speak he had a conference and I wanted to speak at his conference he said the only way I could speak at his conference was to go through his program so in the middle of my exit interview I pull out my phone and I text the guy and say, hey, look, I think I want to take your program because I'm being let go right now. He said, oh, my God, I'll be I'll call you later on this evening. And I sat there and I breathed in through my nose, out through my mouth, in through my nose, out through my mouth. And I just remember saying, not again. God, please, not again. Why? Like, what am I doing wrong? Why can I not live my life the way I want to live my life what am I doing wrong all I want to do is pay my bills and take care of this girl and have a nice house and you know be able to throw money at my son when he needs it and to be able to travel and to just be have some sort of peace to be able to retire off something to be able to do the things that I want to do why is everything in my life constantly being turned upside down? That's what I said on the inside, but on the outside, I was bulletproof. I had been through a divorce. My father had come down with dementia. I had been humiliated by my ex-wife amongst all of our friends and then people I didn't even know. I lost a job after getting a promotion after buying a luxury vehicle. I was built for this. I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna uh, walk with, in shame. I walk with my head held high. Well, we can pack your stuff up 
yeah, I don't trust you're going to pack up anything. And I'm definitely not going to get it anytime soon based on the way things work around here. So I will pack up my office and I will leave. And she stood over me while I packed up my office. I walked out with a box and one of those recyclable, um, reusable shopping bags. And everybody saw her walking with me and me walking across campus. And I was waving to folks. People were like, hey, 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 hey. I was like, hey, y'all. See ya. You know, she said, hey, Eric, look, I'm sorry. You know, you can look over the severance papers and come back and decide whether you want to sign them in the next couple of days. Whatever, lady. And I walked away. And the first thing I did, interestingly enough, as I went into the parking garage is I called my ex-wife because that was something that I didn't do when I got laid off from the the job that I had um, before when I was in marketing and advertising. I kept it to myself out of shame. Well, I called her up. She was at her job. I said, hey, you got a minute? She said, yeah. I said, look, I got laid off. And she was like, what? Like, what? What? And I explained it. And she said, you know, it probably was a numbers thing. And when it came to picking favorites based on where you were, they probably just stuck with their favorites. The new administration, meaning the Trump administration, had come in and they had slashed, uh, done a major slash to education. I remember them saying that, you know, a lot of the funding that was going into our department was being slashed. Maybe they just didn't need the, the extra weight. And I was the newest person on the totem pole. So it made sense. And I wasn't sure. And, you know, that I, I, I still it was never confirmed, but I still was wary that I wasn't like they wanted someone that was out of out of the box, a free thinker. But then every time I was free thinking and this was in the job description, this was in the interviews that I had. But every time that I was free, free thinking, it seemed to ruffle feathers. But again, I was under the impression, like, I guess I thought I was working at Apple, that being a feather ruffler or something to that effect was a good thing to do. And in retrospect, I'm not sure it was. I mean, I could have still done what I wanted to do without having to be an open feather ruffler. <laughs> if there is such a thing. So I remember I put my stuff in the in my car. I had parked on the top uh, of the roof deck that day because of the event. So the parking lot was packed. And I remember looking up at the sky just like I looked at up at the sky when I first got laid off after I got divorced and I said, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all right. This is, I don't understand it. I don't know why, but I'm going to be all right. It would only be a week before I discovered the blessing. I was determined to not let anything get me down. I was determined to not be determined by my circumstances. I was determined to stare misfortune in the face and laugh at it and say, you can't have me. So what did I do? I threw a going away party for myself with the people that I worked with. And I invited everybody but my boss who... You know, I don't know if she was behind anything or not. I mean, I really enjoyed her. I didn't dislike her at all, but I didn't invite her because I don't think it would have been interpreted the right way. And I invited, so I invited my old department. I invited everybody that worked for me. And then I invited like people that, uh, well, and I won't say worked with me. I invited everybody that was on my team. And then I invited all the people that I worked for, like people inside the departments around the campus, blah, blah, blah. And I think I invited a couple friends like from outside of the workplace. 
and we had a get together at the top of the Glen Hotel. Um, they have a nice little roof deck. They had a nice little roof deck, and we had a good time. Drinks, last cigars, a little bit of cigars, not too much. I used to do it back in college. I can't really do it, and like fresh out of school, can't really do it the way I used to. Or I just don't like it the way I used to. Anywho, the sky turned dark. About, I'd say, an hour or so into the, maybe two hours into the party. And by party, I mean we had a table, but, you know, there was a regular whole lounge night going on on the top of this hotel. And afterwards, we were supposed to go to the Ferris wheel. The Ferris wheel is a part of Atlanta tourism. It's a huge Ferris wheel. And when you're on it at the top, you can pretty much see all of downtown Atlanta. We were all going to go over there afterwards. But what wound up happening was that there was a major a major electrical storm that put on a show. And it stormed. I mean, the, the wind was so strong, it almost took the little half roof that was over the rooftop deck for the sun off. There was water and rain blowing everywhere. I mean, it was just terrible. And I remember walking out to the edge of the roof deck um, to look out over the city. And I just observed it. You know, I watched the lightning touching down and arcing out across the the skyline. I mean, it was kind of dramatic, right? But this is real. And I remember saying to myself, I just, I just watched it for a while. I just watched it for a while. And then I remember having this epiphany, this major, major epiphany. And it was... I'm happy. I'm happy. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't know why the things that have happened to me have happened to me. And I don't understand how you get a job a year after you lose a job and then lose that job a year after you get that job. But I'm not tripping. I am in this moment. I am happy. It was thunderclapping storming rain when I said that I was actually starting to get wet as I was coming to this understanding this realization and the whole dance even when it's raining laugh even when it's raining thing it clicked it didn't matter what was going on my happiness was a choice my joy was a choice in that moment for the first time in my entire life in my, I think I was 46, about to be 46 years old or something like that, 47, I don't know. But the first time in my entire life, I knew what it meant to have joy. Shit was all messed up. But I was still okay. I was okay. I decided I was okay. No one was going to take my joy. It was storming at my self-proclaimed going away party. And I was still having a good time. I had people there that cared about me and I cared about them. We laughed and people went on about their business. People went home to be with their wives or people that came with their spouses left with them. And it was all good. I went home by myself and I was fine because why? I had joy. And once I tasted that, once I felt that, once I had that in my heart, the fact that I had the right to be whomever I wanted to be, regardless of what was ever, what it was going on around me. For the first time in my life, I felt true freedom. And I felt true power. And I hope 
everyone at some point comes to understand that. But the one thing I will say about joy is that joy is typically conversely experienced in the midst of pain. You don't know what joy is when things are going great because there's nothing to understand. You experience joy in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain. I don't even think that joy can be contemplated unless you're in a adverse situation because happiness that comes for free is circumstantial. Happiness that comes when your whole thing is messed up that's real and that's what I had and that is what I've had ever since and that is what I reach out to when everything is falling apart around me I reach out to that same feeling I had on that roof deck rooftop not roof deck on that rooftop it was a it was an amazing feeling something that I stumbled on to accidentally and who knows that whole scenario that whole year of working there, that getting unceremoniously dismissed from someplace where I genuinely liked working, despite the ups and downs and all the rest of that that everybody experiences, that whole year may have happened for me to have that one single moment. And that's not me as a human being trying to reach and derive value where there is none and justify what happened to make myself feel better. No, what I felt was real. It was cataclysmic in my life. It completely shifted who I was as a human being to understand that my happiness, my joy, my whatever derived from within. And maybe just maybe that whole experience that I had had came as a result, came all of it, the pain, even the divorce, all of that stuff, all of that came to teach me that it's not what I go through it's not what I do but it's who I am and who I choose to be I in that moment walked away with the power of choice a little more than a month later I was in full workout blowout jumping rope doing calisthenics doing plyometrics doing push-ups like I was in prison and I added spin to the mix now, most people hear spin and they think soul cycle and a couple of other watered down places but none of that stuff none of those people are originators they're appropriators spin originate trap the trap spin sometimes referred to as urban spin originated here in atlanta georgia at a rec center and i guess you can't you know, patent something, but the guy was in a spin class and he decided that he was going to add his flair to the spin class. And then over time, everyone that was in those classes with him, a lot of them became instructors and a lot of them took that style elsewhere. And then, of course, once something makes the news, it gets duplicated and then capitalized on. No hate, just saying what it is. Even spin was something where I determined to have joy. Somebody I used to run with was teaching a class. He invited me to join his class. I mean, it wasn't like a free invitation, but I signed up. I started paying. I started coming to teach his, coming to his class. And it was funny because I have this theory that, you know, the greatest fear, and a lot of people have the same theory, that the greatest fear to starting a workout is not actually about starting it, but it's how you look when you start. And I looked terrible and I went into this gym and it was a very gritty gym, very 
gritty, grimy gym. And the women had nice shapes and the men were all super muscular and everybody seemed to know each other. And there was a lot of yelling and hollering going on. And there were people, you know, LeBron was on the wall and football games from all over the country were playing all day, all the time. It was a hardcore gym. It wasn't, you know, and, and trap music played and Drake played and, you know, Future played and Atlanta people played. It wasn't air conditioned, at least not in a uh, effective way. It wasn't cool and dark with like that, with that, that trance house playing, that maddening trance house. And I'm a house head, but that maddening trance house playing all day long wasn't dark walls. It was bright. A gutted grocery, a, a gutted grocery store. Classes were Wednesday evenings at seven and Saturday mornings at 10. And a month or so into my spin experience. I got a text. It was a Saturday morning. I came out of spin and there was a text on my phone. I'm tired of being celibate. I don't even think it was a hello. It was like, I know we haven't spoken in a while. I'm tired of being celibate. I'm tired of being alone. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want a relationship. I don't want commitment. I just don't want to be celibate anymore. I looked at the phone. I blacked out the screen and I reopened the screen to see if the text was still there and it was still there. And the reason why I was a little bewildered was because it was from the first person that I dated on the rebound after I broke up with my ex-wife. And yeah, we knew each other for a long time, but that situation did not end well. And I hurt her and so on and so forth. So I don't get it. Like, I didn't I didn't get it. And I was like, man, I ain't. So this is a proper this is what a proposition feels like, because I had never been propositioned at that point. I said, man, I ain't messing with this. And I wasn't going to call her back either. At least not until I had thought about it. There was different energy in her messaging to me. I spent the day thinking about it. Hmm. I wonder what it would be like if I stopped caring. I wonder what it would be like if I stopped trying to do the right thing all the time. I wonder what it would be like if I didn't torture myself with the idea that I shouldn't be having sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage or marriage, sex period and have this terrible guilty feeling that I always have after I'm with somebody because of my beliefs. I wonder what it would be like to just not care. I was sitting on my deck thinking about all of this and I decided that I wasn't gonna care. And I picked up the phone to call her up. Hey folks, until the next time, I wish you peace, prosperity, Payne out.